Morning, Andy. Morning, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Okay. Alright. Alright, let's start grabbing a seat. Get back there grabbing a snack. Staff, if I can get your help. Conversation, bring it to a close. Staff, again, if I could get your help. Nick, if you want to help. Allie and John, if you guys want to help with the coffee table over there. All right. You guys excited to start tracks? time in the prayer room. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. Well, guys, to start class off, I'd really, um, how many of you guys enjoyed small groups yesterday? Yeah. I would love maybe just a few people, if you just want to um, stand up and maybe just give uh, some things that you got out of your small group yesterday. Is there anyone in this section over here, you just want to stand up and share a little something uh, of what you got in your small group? A203, I heard, maybe? A203, right here. Just growing in fellowship with seven other awesome guys. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. What about, uh, what were some of the things that we processed in our small groups? We processed kind of what the, some of the stuff that's happened in the week. Maybe a, a quick testimony of, of what God's done in your heart so far this week. Is there anyone? There's got to be one. Where, 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 where? Stand up. Stand up, yeah. going to be like the best day of your life like every tomorrow has the opportunity to be the best day of your life if you want it so i mean like if you guys just go like all in i mean god is so big and he's so good he just wants to move in all of us like we're all going to go out and like 
going to the nations, we're going to change worlds. Every one of us is a world changer. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Well, guys, I'm so excited for this morning. we got Andy with us again. So, let's see this. I'm, I'm going to give it over to Andy, but can we uh, show him that we've kind of gotten, oh, uh, to do that. We've caught in grasp of the uh, culture celebration? So, can we give it up for Andy? So much. This has been one of the most fun, just first weeks of like, feel like we already know each other for months. Do you kind of feel that way? Even some of your roommates are like, how did I just meet you like three days ago? There's no way I should be as vulnerable and open as I am right now. I can't believe I've already told you some things I've said. I can't believe we've prayed the way we prayed. It's weird, isn't it? I can't believe I'm sharing a bathroom with you. You're a total stranger. All those things, right? God has a way of fast-tracking these relationships. It's so much fun. But I, too, I just feel like you guys have been here for weeks already. It just feels like family. It feels so right um, just to be together. And so excited for today and to jump right back in and, uh, and just uh, see where God takes us, see what he wants to say to us today. So every day I've kind of been praying into a primary culture to kind of reinforce as part of what we've come into as this culture of Jesus, culture of the kingdom. And then uh, second area, you know, just going after some of these gospel truths and uh, laying some strong Bible foundation at the, at the core of uh, this whole thing, at the foundation of this whole thing, which ultimately, at the end of the day, is to draw us into deeper intimacy with Jesus. That's the goal, is that we fall in love with Jesus more than we ever have in our entire lives. If you walk away from these six months and you're more in love with Jesus, you have succeeded. And everything else is a detail. Everything else will flow out of that. But that is what it's about. It is about growing in this incredible love relationship with Jesus that we would stay on for the rest of our lives. So the culture I want to hit today, uh, John Mark probably gave an overview of almost all of them that we might hit. But uh, he, so he probably mentioned this briefly, but I just want to spend maybe 20 minutes on it or so. And it's a culture of happy holiness. Yes. And, uh, and I just want to spend a little bit of time on it, go through kind of a couple Bible verses on it to just lay this foundation. And I hope you guys feel this from me even this week as I, I don't um, position myself as like, Hey, you know, there's this great revelation. Come on up here and grab it. I feel like this is already all in your hearts. And all we're doing is just putting language and scriptural truths to what's already inside of you. And so it's not that even in talking about happy holiness that there's some giant, you know, we have some giant issue in our lives or in our community or in our school. It's more that there's a, there's a pre-wired longing in every one of our hearts to bring pleasure to Jesus and to live as much eternal life as we will, you know, in future eternity, as much as possible right now. Like that's in every one of us, not wanting to wait for some day, you know, when we, we go into a blaze of glory. But right now I want to bring heaven to earth. I'm not just waiting for heaven. I want to bring heaven to earth. And so that longings in every one of us. So I want to put language to the desire that's already in our hearts to love holiness and to pursue it and to understand it. So, real quick, some Bible verses, a little bit kind of um, what we spent some time on yesterday. We talked about Romans chapter 5. How many of you felt like maybe you woke up standing in grace today in a fresh way? Did anybody think about that when they woke up this morning? Just like, dang, I'm not really in Hawaii. I'm actually standing in grace right now. And uh, I felt our time yesterday that we ended with was um, 
I, I just was so encouraged by the all-in passion of this room and just like the willingness to just lay it joyfully, lay it all down at the feet of Jesus with so much passion, with that crazy, long, triumphant shout. And uh, I really believe that though you may not feel anything, and that's part of what will hit, I don't know, today or tomorrow, is that this, this whole thing's a journey of faith, not of feelings. Feelings are wonderful, but they're meant to accompany faith, not lead faith. And far too many believers have feelings in the, in the engine of the train, and uh, we got to put faith back in the engine. Uh, faith is the locomotive of the Christian life. And feelings are important, but they're around the caboose. They're, they're, not, they're not leading the way like they have in so, for, so, many, uh, for so, so often in our lives. And so yesterday, even as we ended, it wasn't maybe even about what we may have walked away and felt. It was, it's by faith understanding the power of the gospel to cleanse us, give us the righteousness of Christ, and to lead us into the surrendered life. And that's a faith that today when you woke up, you were different than you woke up yesterday. Something, something's different. There's another measure of surrender. There's another measure of faith. There's another measure of trust in the transforming power of the gospel. And that's a, that's a faith. That's something we believe deep in our hearts. So as we walk through our days, we apply that faith to every lie and every temptation of the enemy. Go, I'm not that person anymore. That doesn't work anymore. I'm just, I'm not that person. You can't try that old trick anymore. I, I understand the blood of Jesus. I understand the foundation of grace. I understand I have access unlimited to the Father right now. So that, those old tricks aren't going to work anymore. I know who I am. I'm a son or I'm a daughter. And applying that by faith is where the breakthrough lands, right? So you may or may not have felt much yesterday walking away, right? It's kind of like one moment we're all screaming our heads off in faith, and the next moment we're like walking into the lunch line, right? <laughs> right? It's just, it's, but that's life, isn't it? And this life of faith, it's the combo of all. It's not like a, this ultra-mystical spiritual experience. It's like, you know, it's changing diapers and loving Jesus all at the same time. Right? It's, it's eating lunch and shouts of victory five minutes apart. Right? It's, it, that's, that's life. That's Jesus when he walked the earth. is the same way. We don't want to give in to this mindset that something is more spiritual than something else. This is all this walk of faith with Jesus. So I hope you walked away yesterday. One, I hope you felt the power of God in the, in the corporate shout of an all-in victory over sin and that we were in to follow Jesus. I hope you felt that, like the emotion of that power. I felt it. But then I hope that superseding what you felt is that you walked out in faith that when you were eating lunch, a different person than you ate breakfast. And that you woke up this morning a different person than you woke up yesterday, right? That's, That's faith applied to life all around us. So... Now, jumping into the culture of happy holiness, we talked about Romans chapter 5. I mentioned briefly Romans chapter 6, and you can follow Paul's logic on this. He goes, hey, if you're really standing in grace, if Jesus really died to actually fully forgive and forget your entire history, then he starts with chapter, in chapter 6, he goes, then, then what, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He goes, by no means. In other words, he's made such a big deal out of grace That his fear was, he goes, I have so extravagantly talked about grace. My fear now is that you have such a big picture of grace that you think that it's okay to continue to walk in sin. He goes, grace is amazing. He goes, but if it is amazing, it should be the impetus to forever kick sin in the face. In other words, if he is this good and he is this amazing and this grace is this incredible, he goes, how could we ever walk into things we used to walk in, right? He goes, by no means. 
We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He says, don't you know that all those who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So our old man, that old sin nature, it's dead. It's gone. It's, it's not who you are anymore. And there are so many believers that are like living in both worlds. They're like, I'm running into the new thing and they're dragging around a cadaver. The old dead man's still there and he's heavy. Have you ever tried to drag someone that's just totally limp, like dead weight, try and move them? It's so hard. That's what it's like to pull our old dead sin nature around with us into the new life. Jesus goes, no way. Paul says, no way. He goes, that thing died in Jesus's death. It's gone. And, when, and you've now been brought into a new life, set free from sin. These flies up here. <laughs> Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died for sin once and for all. And then he goes on. Let's just give a couple more verses here. He says, what then? Verse 15. I love it when Paul says that. Like, what do you think about that? He goes, shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of righteousness. He says, I'm using an example from everyday life. I'm almost done. Human limitations, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and ever increasing wickedness. So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? He goes, all that stuff you did before, he goes, what good did it really bring in your life? He goes, you were ashamed of it. The thing, those things resulted in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and you have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. The result is eternal life. So here is the deal. Through justification, through salvation, the finished work of Jesus on the cross, it's so important we understand this. How did you enter into salvation? What did you do? And was that it? How much holiness did you have to have before you really were deserving of salvation? So you're, you believe, you're telling me, you believe that simply by believing in Jesus, you were forever forgiven and made righteous. Yes. Do you believe that? Yes. that that's audacious. Yes. Do you really believe that? Yes. yes. In a moment, all you did was think a thought that was very true. And the truth of that thought gave you a lifetime of righteousness. Come on. Yeah. Do you believe that? Yeah. yeah. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Scandalous. How could the guilty be made so innocent by doing nothing wow. but believing? Wow. It's a scandalous gospel. It's ridiculous. And Paul says, when you were set free from sin, he goes, it's an issue of mastery. Think about this. Do you sometimes still struggle with sin? Does it mean that you're not saved? When we were given the righteousness of Christ, it wasn't that we would never sin for the rest of our lives. It's that our masters changed. 
And what I used to be a slave to, I'm no longer a slave to. And what before I was not a slave to, I now am a slave to. What my salvation did for me was cleanse my guilt from all of my life. I was given the righteousness of Christ. And not only that, is that through salvation, the enemy's foot was on my neck in my sin nature. In other words, I'm alive, I'm trying my best, but the enemy has mastery over me. His foot was on my neck. The moment I believed in Jesus was the greatest wrestling reversal of all time. And I went from being in a full Nelson to putting the enemy in a full Nelson. I went from being in a headlock that I could never get out of for the rest of my life, the craziest submission hold that I'd ever been in, tapping out every single day of my life, to in a moment, through belief in the shed blood of Jesus, all of a sudden I found myself with my foot on the neck of the enemy. Still noisy, still able to bite a little bit, still able to tempt, still able to rear his head, but my foot was on his neck. No longer did sin have mastery over me. Now I have mastery over sin. So salvation purchased that for me, not my good works. But now that I have mastery over sin, Paul goes on to say, how could you now any longer with your foot on the neck of the enemy look down and go, now I'm I'm still just going to live according to what you tempt me with and what you ask me to do. He goes, no, 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 no. What you used to be a slave to, you're no longer a slave to. But now you're a slave to the one who has gained your allegiance through love, through goodness, through kindness, through mercy, through compassion. I broke the chain that was attaching me to the enemy and I took it and I shackled myself to the father. And I said, I don't want to be a slave to sin any longer. You broke that, but I choose to make myself a slave to you now. And he says, the benefit that you reap is holiness and eternal life. Holiness is both our identity because of salvation and it's our lifestyle because of the choices we make. Holiness is not about obtaining something you don't have. Holiness is about living who you already are. And this is so important because the church forever has seen a bar. And if we can get up to that bar, I can finally be holy. But I already know I'm struggling with too many things. And I had a bad thought yesterday. And I fell a little bit and I did this and I did that. I'll never reach that bar. Jesus goes, hey. You already are holy. Just live like it. Just live like it. It's like, it's like a, how strange would it be if you saw someone who was trying to be something they already were. And you just had a conversation with them. Let's just say it's this incredible mechanic. And you're just, they're pretending, it's, this, it's ironic, it's ridiculous. It's like they're acting like they don't know what they're doing. You know they know what they're doing. They fixed 400 cars and all of a sudden they're there going, I just need to be a better mechanic, I need a better mechanic, I'm the greatest mechanic you've ever seen. I just need to be a better mechanic. Gosh, I'm just such a terrible mechanic. And the whole time you're going, no, 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 it's who you are. Just be a mechanic. And the same way in Christianity, we've tried, tried, tried to be something we don't realize we already are. Holiness is living from your identity that was given to you through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You are holy, and therefore we live holy. Not we're this mess. You're not, you're not a sinner. The moment you get saved, you've been transferred from sinner to saint. We have this idea that I'm a sinner who sometimes does saintly things, but it's different. You're a saint who sometimes struggles with sin. But if you live from that sinner identity, then how will we ever overcome it? Because it's just who I am. It's my innate nature. No, it's not. Your nature is now saint. 
Your nature is now son and daughter of the living God. And now we have the choice in holiness to choose that and to live according to it. So happy holiness is not this unobtainable measure that we'll never get to. It's not this line we'll never achieve. Happy holiness is like, it's who I am. How about I live according to who I really am instead of pretending I'm someone else? Right? So to not choose holiness is to be an imposter of your identity. To not live and to choose that what I would watch, what I would listen to, the words in my mouth, my thought life, my actions, to not allow those to line up with my identity is to be an imposter. It's to choose not to live according to who I really am. Holiness ought to be the natural wellspring of salvation, not the abnormal Christian life where we're like, wow, that guy's really set apart. Who's not set apart? What was the cross for? So some are saved and not set apart? That's a partial salvation. It's an insult to the work of Jesus. You're all set apart. The moment he justified you, you were set apart. Set apartness is not for a few that we look at and go, man, someday I'd love to just live like that. You are that person. Choose to live in it. That's happy holiness. It's a joy. It's a privilege. It's what's been given to us as a gift by God. And it's an honor to choose to walk it out, to live it out. Let me just give you a few more things on this. In this area of holiness, we have drawn these really funny lines in Christianity. And then oftentimes, at least me, I don't know how your upbringing was, I tried to get as close to the line as possible because I thought that was a little more freedom, but without crossing it because then I felt a lot of guilt and shame when I did. So it's like, here's the line. And the line's made up by every different movement in different ways. Can't do this, can't do that, right? I talked, my dad grew up Southern Baptist. Any Southern Baptists in the room? Not so many. And a few. And he grew up Southern Baptist. Amazing. And my, my grandparents were... Um, just faithful, faithful followers of Jesus. My grandma and grandpa taught the exact same Sunday school class. They taught separate ones, but for 50 years, they taught the same Sunday school class. Like mega faithful, right? And he grew up and the line they had drawn was very interesting. You know, you could, Christians couldn't play cards. And you're like, I, it, why? You know, well, maybe it was associated with gamble. You have all these things and why it might have been. But to our minds, it's like, man, I played go fish with my son and I never one time thought of it as a sin, right? Uh, but, but there were these lines drawn, right? And we've done this throughout all of history. We've done it again today. There's these lines. And then oftentimes as Christians, we're as close to the line as possible without ever crossing because we know we shouldn't. If we do every once in a while, we're like, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But I want to propose a totally different way of looking at life is that to, to live according to lines is to live in the bare minimum of the abundant life, if at all. And, and I am believing for a generation that doesn't even know their lines, not because they blurred them into sloppy grace and just allowing tons of sin. They don't know their lines because they've so far run past the line. They don't remember where the lines were drawn, not drawn. They're just so in love with Jesus that the answer to every question of life is not, is there a line that my movement, denomination, you know, whoever is drawn, but what is Jesus like? And what if the question of holiness was not based on human standards, but biblical standards in the heart of Jesus? Yeah. And what if instead of finding these lines and then as close as we can and then across it shouldn't have, instead it was like, I don't know where the lines are because I am so, I'm a, I'm a hundred miles past the last line I knew about because I've just been running after Jesus so hard. Yeah. And the question all of life was, you know, because we have these are real questions we should ask them. Please ask them. Is, well, should I watch this? Well, I don't know. What, what, is, what is Jesus like? Well, should I listen to this? Well, what is Jesus like? Right? And I think you think about it, just take any category. You guys all know this. I'm putting just 
you know, words that are already in your hearts, I believe, is thinking about some of the music today. I was in H&M not long ago, and uh, I was so grieved because uh, the music was so degrading of women. And so much music is degrading of women. So much music. And I have daughters. That's unacceptable in my house. That is unacceptable. My aim is to raise daughters that never wrestle with self-hatred. They, they never have to question their beauty. That these girls would take whole cities because of their confidence in the love of God. I have three daughters. They're going to they're change the world. So when I hear that stuff, it's not a matter of me to like, of like, well, it's not that big a deal. It's just music. Like, you know, I don't, the words don't really affect me. I, I, I'm so far. I'm so far beyond that. Yeah. I'm so far beyond that. I have daughters. And I was, I was this close. I was on my way to go and talk to the lady who was working in there and to repent on behalf of men and, and people that have celebrated and tolerated this garbage yeah. that she has to sit in there and listen to because she's an employee. And I was on my way and then she got called into a meeting right as I was going there to talk to her. But I just thought holiness is not, it's the bare minimum to ask the question, well, it doesn't have any, you know, it, they aren't dropping F-bombs. They were like, it's not that big a deal. I, I don't, it, it, ugh. How, how did we get there? What's Jesus like? What's Jesus like? Right? We ask the question, what should I watch? What should I not watch? And man, not this room, but Christians get so defensive. Do they not? Have you ever been in the defensive conversation? I mean, I'm not, I won't even mention a show. I don't know many of them anyway. But if you throw out a show and you have a conversation, man, people get defensive. They're like, don't, it's not that big a deal, man. It's just real life. You're just like, well, maybe there's an issue because of how angry you're getting about this. <laughs> it's my life, man. It's like, I thought it was Jesus's life. Oh, I, I mean, I don't know. I just read my Bible and took it for what it said. Yeah, you know, you get so defensive. Like, don't, don't tell me. Don't put your standards on me. Like, I, hey, if my life is bringing conviction to you, why don't you take that up with Jesus? But like, don't get mad at me right now. I just... But like, I'm just going after God. I'm just doing my best, right? We were so defensive about what they watch. And, and same deal. I want to move us past the line of like, well, there was no you know, blatant nudity in that movie. It's okay. And you're just like, really? That's where we've gotten? That, that's, that's how far we've fallen? Oh, if there isn't any like full-blown sex scene in it, we're like, hey, there, at least there wasn't a full-blown sex scene in it. Really? Well, what about all the other things that were degrading women throughout it? And then we wonder why we wrestle with all this stuff that goes on that is related to the degrading of women. Well, because we've sat in front of it for hours and hours and hours and justified it. Instead of running after happy holiness that goes, what's Jesus like? How about I fill my thoughts with his thoughts? How often when we entertain ourselves do we really have to leave the Holy Spirit at the door? Or how often can we bring him right into everything that we do as a community, as individuals? You know, how often can he sit on the bed and watch what we're watching or be in the other end of the headphone as we're listening to what we're listening to? I don't know about you guys. I do think I know about you guys. That's how I want to live my whole life. Yeah. And that's how I want to raise my children. Yeah. I don't want to raise daughters and sons. I don't want to raise my... My sons need to know how to treat women. Right. I have like one main goal over my two radical sons that they would be the greatest husbands on planet Earth. That's like one of my highest goals. If I don't teach them how to treat women, and I just go, hey kids, we just watch this in our house, we listen to this, no big deal, then they are going to fall right into the pattern that's being multiplied right now. And I don't know how many of you ladies in this room actually enjoy the pattern that's being multiplied right now. Right? 
So happy holiness is not anymore about drawing these lines and then getting defensive about what we have a right to or not a right to. Happy holiness is like my life is set apart to the glory of Jesus. And I got 70 little tiny years that will be over tomorrow. Tomorrow this thing's over. I'm telling you, eat your few meals, wake up, and it's over. I mean, this thing is going to go so fast. And all of eternity is based on these little 70 years on earth. And I know for you and I know for me that my greatest joy when I go into that blaze of glory is to be able to look back and go, God, I wasn't perfect, immaturities, insecurities, but I gave it all. I gave it all for you, for your glory, for the enjoyment of you, and for obedience to you. Happy holiness lives for eternity. Right? It lives out of identity and it lives for eternity. You guys okay? Seem like God will have you in here. Are you alright? Are you okay? You gotta hear, you, what I want you to hear is I am fighting for us in this. I am fighting for the dignity of women. I am sick of what's out there. I'm sick of it. And I'm sick of the church making excuses for it. It's crap. It's garbage. I want to fight for a generation of ladies who know they are. And I want to fight for a generation of men who know who they are. And a generation of couples that get married and know who they are. I want to fight for a generation who goes to bed at night filled with the joy of both a saved and justified life that I did nothing to earn and a life that's been set apart with every fiber of my being. Yeah. I want to live in the rest of my justification, but I want to run in the fight of my holiness. And I I want to inspire you that we can turn the tables on what's become normal in society. Come on. We have been affected by culture long enough. It's time that we start affecting culture. It's only with the gospel at the core and not our good works that we can do it. But from justification, oh, Holiness becomes joyful and happy. Are you guys, are we good? Are you guys okay? Okay. How, what are we for time here? All right. Let me do one more thing on this. Holiness is about fellowship. Let me just say this. Philippians chapter one, verses nine through 11. I'll hit this in a second. You may have grown up as I did with holiness messages that were sort of like the surrender message. They were just like, they were the worst, man. I just left feeling like the biggest scumbag on the planet. It's like, I am a loser, right? And it was just all about what I could never achieve myself, which is why we spent two days on justification through the shed blood of Jesus. Because that is his work of atonement. And all I am doing is receiving it, believing it, and responding to it for the rest of my life. I didn't earn it, I responded to it, right? But I grew up with the message like, hey, get on up here, you, you, you disappointment. And it, it, I just could never measure up. It was just like one hard message after another. And I could never make it. I don't know about you, but I could simply never make it. Until I began to understand the love of God. And it wasn't all of a sudden I moved into like perfection. My whole framework got rewired. No longer was it about the lines. It was about Jesus. And this is the thing that a generation is waiting for. Is the church again is often known for our lines. We're known for what we're against instead of what we're for. We're known for what we don't do more than we're known for what we do do. And I want to say to you, the holiness has very little to do with what not to do. I want to say that's kindergarten Christianity. Isn't it? Like, at what point do you stop telling your kid to to not touch the stove because they're old enough to know that it will burn their hands? If I'm telling my 18-year-old the stove's hot, something went wrong in the parenting scenario. (laughs) Right? 
guys, please hear me on this and be inspired, encouraged, and smile about it. What not to do in the Christian life is kindergarten Christianity. But we are in our 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s still talking about what not to do. Right? When you have a kid and I have five-year-olds, like you're still working on like, hey, don't play in the street. You know, It's just not a great idea. But if Asher is playing in the road at 13, I have failed as a parent, right? When, now that Asher's 13, we're not talking so much about what he shouldn't do because it would hurt him. Now he's beyond understanding the repercussions of playing in the street. And now we're working on what he should do, right? So it, kindergarten Christianity is more like, hey, don't do this, do this. I, I just want to say again, this is common sense. We just have to embrace it as common sense. We've, we've blurred the lines too much. You just go, okay, yeah, watching garbage is common sense Christianity, a bad idea, right? Can we just put that on the table so that we don't have to have endless arguments about it? Right, hey, don't, don't bring up Netflix, man. That just got too close. Right, no, can we just put that on the realm of playing in the street? Come on. And I'm not, I'm not demonizing all forms of entertainment. I'm just saying we've just kind of lost rationale on it. Yeah. And it's sort of, yeah, right? And then you guys are, you're like, you know, coming up and they're like, dude, I'm just struggling with lust. Can you pray for me again? God, I'd love to pray for you. My prayer can't do anything beyond what you're willing to do by your own will. So I, I could pray for you for the next 24 hours. I could do a 40-day fast for you. But if you aren't willing to actually use some self-control, then my prayer is fruitless and pointless and powerless. Right? So in the same way, can we just put some things in that realm of common sense Christianity so that we can move past it? Right? So if we'll do that, then we can actually then begin to focus far more and the world will know us far more based on not what we don't do, but what we do do. My discipleship of Asher now is totally different. It's like, son, we've moved past, like, it would be nice of you to, like, smile at a stranger. We're past that. Now we're moving to the point of, son, are you ready to pray for any stranger that the Holy Spirit says to? Right? We're we're moving. He's being discipled. I'm no longer being like, that stove's hot. Don't touch it, right? Now it's like, Asher, here's how to cook on it. Right? See, it changes. But so many Christians are, like, 25, 30 years old, and they're like, is it hot? Dang, it burnt me. This is so strange. (laughs) Right? It's so wild. You're like, so you're struggling with lust. Let me tell you, when's the last time you saw a movie that was just like super trash? And you're like, yesterday. I don't understand why I'm struggling today. (laughs) It's been 24 hours. You're like, all right, just keep touching the stove, buddy. (laughs) Rational Christianity. Right? So if we'll put that in the realm of like common sense, then we begin to move towards... What the world is longing for is not a church who knows what they shouldn't do. What the world is longing for is a church who's fallen in love with a beautiful alternative. There's a beautiful alternative to lust. It's called love. There's a beautiful alternative to addictions. It's called addiction to God's love. There's a beautiful alternative to all these things that have kind of captured our attention. Little foxes, little compromises. The world is waiting for a church to rise up that's living according to a beautiful alternative. There's another way to live. It's not about what I don't do. Come and watch what I do do. Come and what was Jesus known for? The works that he did, not what he didn't do. What he didn't do was irrelevant. It was common sense. He wasn't going to do any of those things. It was what he did do that showed the world righteousness. As the world's waiting for a church that would move past common sense Christianity and go, you know what, kindergarten was great, but it's time I moved to first grade. Come on. Come on, we got sponge painting 25-year-olds out there. Put the sponge paints down. 
Yeah! It's time for arithmetic. Yeah. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> my, my kindergartners, I have two of them, they call it hard work. They have all their, at school, they have all their normal stuff, the sponge painting, and then it's hard work. And hard work is like the alphabet, right? So now they're learning the alphabet, and it's awesome. I was like, Valor, how was your hard work today? He was like, it was awesome, Dad. I'm like testing him. He's like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? And he's, he's progressing. He'd be sponge painting when he's 18. I mean, maybe it's a cool form of art now. I don't know. Maybe it's like a new hipster form of art, sponge painting. Okay, great. So this happy holiness is about falling in love with a beautiful alternative and leaving behind the elementary teachings of righteousness. Because now we're living from the foundation of his love and our justification and we are running towards a beautiful alternative. Guys, what would it be like? I'm I'm ending. Throw this out. What would it be like? I don't have time to go to Philippians as much as I'd love to. If we just decided together this quarter, this community, you're still getting to know each other. We're still pretty new, but we're going, we're moving fast. Is if we decided to establish a culture of happy holiness here that was so powerful in breaking off sin, compromise, struggles, that not only did we not just stay there the whole time, but we moved forward as a school into great exploits, into radical love, extravagant kindness because we were living from the identity of our holiness. What would it be like to be in a community that fought for that together? Yeah. What would it be like to be in a community where the men fought for the women and the women fought for the men? So yeah. There was none of this, you know, the weird stuff that goes on. We just got, this is a no weird zone. This is like, this is a swirl free zone. None of, that, none of that swirls are allowed here. And we just determined together, go, no, there's not going to be any weird, swirly stuff going on here. We're going to be a people who's going after happy holiness because we have revelation of the love of God. And we have revelation of a beautiful alternative. What would that be like, guys? What would that be like? Because I'm telling you, it would be a waste of your time if we were just like, the whole time, guys, we're going to talk about overcoming sin. No. That, that was yesterday. Let's rumble. Into the future, right? And if, we stumble, if we stumble, we stumble. We know what to do. Repent, get back up, and keep running. Right? We know what to do. No big deal. Kick those little, you know, just shame and condemnation. We got to graduate past those things. They're little tiny demons, little like wiener dog demons. <laughs> Obviously, I don't believe that. You know, I'm not making a theological statement. But I mean, if we allow shame and condemnation to remain in our lives, then the Holy Spirit's hands are tied to convict us. Because every time He tries to convict us, we move into shame and condemnation. He goes, I'd love to lead you into greater freedom, but I can't even talk to you without you moving into all that shame and condemnation stuff. We move past the shame and condemnation. Go, God, I want to enter into this. I want to go after happy holiness. I want to run after this all my heart. Tell me anything you need to tell me. Convict me of anything you need to convict me of. I hope that even this morning, God's releasing fresh conviction over any habits in our lives, any things He wants to clean up. I remember this was so new to me when I came to DTS, and uh, you know, we we had uh, CDs. You know, there's still this was the world of discmen, the discmen, discmens, and skip protection. Anyone? Still working. It was unbelievable technology. <laughs> and, and I remember I brought all these CDs, right? And, uh, and I hated Christian music in my DTS. It was, I just thought it was the cheesiest thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of uh, even, you know, amazing, like, Bethel worship and Hillsong and all these groups out. They're just so awesome. I just love Jesus so much. I just, either, either I wasn't aware of it or there wasn't as much of it. But either way, I just had a bunch of junk. And I remember I, I got so rocked. I told you my story. And that second week, I was so 
Because you know, for me, I got up off the ground and I never looked back. And I don't have like a crazy testimony of like history of, you know, drugs and my, Todd White's testimony shot at, you know, missed bullets, all that kind of stuff. I don't have that testimony. My testimony is a ton of compromise, ton of religiosity, met Jesus, and I can't remember a week in the last 19 years that I haven't been in love with Jesus. And I can't remember a week. I can't remember a week in the last 19 years where my heart hasn't been falling more in love with him. My testimony is one of his keeping power and that you never have to have a season of compromise the rest of your life. That's my testimony. Not by my own strength. I I believe in justification. I believe in the power of Jesus and I believe in his love, right? So what if we went after this as a school like never before? I was telling you, that second week I got so convicted, I took every one of my CDs and made the most illegal plastic fire that had gone off on the shores of Maui in a long time. I stuck them all in a barrel and they went into a black plume of smoke. And all that stuff, gone forever. And I just said, well, you know what? It's a new day. And for me, my ears are set apart to Jesus. Because whatever goes into them is what's going to come out in my heart, right? My eyes set apart to Jesus because whatever goes in there is going to affect my heart. And I love my marriage too much to let anything else tempt my eyes. I, I set my eyes on one woman for the rest of my life. And, and one woman has my attention and my affection, right? So I just, uh, from that point forward, I just set those things apart. Now, it doesn't mean you don't struggle at times, but you know what to do when you struggle. You repent, get up, and you keep rolling with Jesus, right? So I want to invite us into that. Are you guys in? Can we go after happy holiness like never before? I mean, like, smiles on our faces, joy in our hearts, like... I can't even believe we're invited into this. All my weaknesses, all my immaturities, and all my insecurities, I can't even believe he's inviting me into it. And so can we believe that over even the next several weeks, that some of those breakthroughs that we've been wanting to have with compromise or areas of distraction, can we just believe together that as we walk together in community and according to the truths of Scripture, it's getting deeper in our hearts, that those things are going to be shattered over our lives. Can we press in for that together? Can we fight for that together? Could you in your rooms go a little deeper into that? What's been, you know, what's holding you back? And how could you pray for each other? And how could you, you know, walk with each other into greater and greater breakthroughs? And then in the midst of that, can we redefine holiness as a beautiful alternative to everything that the enemy would throw at us? And can we be known as the people that are going after Jesus, not living according the bare minimum of those around us. What do you guys think? Okay. Turn to the person next to you. Just tell them whatever you want about being in. Whatever. Like, I'm in or I'm going to do it. Whatever you want to tell them. Okay. All right, here we go. Stand up real quick and stretch. Just 30 seconds. Stretch out. Keep talking to the person next to you. Stretch out a little bit. Head back towards your chair. We're going to jump right back in. Come on. Let's go. Oh, yeah. Stretch it out. All right. That's good. 
Okay, you guys ready? I'm reading some testimonies. It just came in. Oh, these are fun. I'll read them to you here. Wow. Okay, here we go. Norway. Where's our Norwegians? Yes! Yes, I love Norway. Hans Nielsen Hauge. Here we go. Okay, Norway. Uh, just did a ministry night calling people back to first love with Jesus. Uh, 30 people fully surrendered their lives to Jesus, literally the whole room. Um, they literally preached the gospel. She says the whole, literally the entire room responded. A woman got chronic, unhealable back pain healed. And a girl, yeah. So cool. A, a girl was weeping because her inflamed knees were healed. And so many left their comfort zones, felt the Holy Spirit. It was a complete shift in the room. You can feel a fire coming in Norway. <laughs> A, a team in Uganda. This is from Uganda. Uh, they, they do, they're doing evangelism today. We went, we're talking, praying about what we wanted to see God do. One of the girls felt like the Lord has said that blind eyes were going to open. One of the groups, uh, as they went out in their groups, we were out sharing the gospel of the group. People, three people gave their lives to the Lord for the first time. And uh, yeah, and a lady, her name was Jaja, great name, Jaja. Well, uh, was blind in one eye. They prayed for her and she got completely healed and she can see her. Wow. And just more, it, it goes kind of long here, but it's just more salvations and more healings in U, uh, Uganda. These are all in Uganda. A whole bunch of testimonies from Uganda there of even more salvations and healings. So fun, guys. So fun. Okay. Here we go. Oh, wait a second. Sorry, another one. This is fun. This is from Michigan, Dearborn, which is the, the, the largest Muslim population in America is in Dearborn, Michigan. So we sent a team there for a month before they did the Carry the Love Tour with Circuit Riders. So I just got a text from our contact there. He says, 36 salvations. fun and then he writes it he just cataloged all these things and i'll read them to you and you can cheer after if you want to he goes we've we've documented 31 healings he says he goes backs teeth throats stomachs migraines shoulders ankles uh, a leg grew out new knees tremors new, more new knees uh, a shoulder was healed knee abscess was healed migraines heart valve Heart problem, back injury, diabetes, two rotator cuffs, lungs, migraines, hearing, more ears, hearing, ankles, left knee, back pain, a whole list of 31 miraculous healings and 36 salvations in Dearborn, Michigan. Come on, guys. That is amazing. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. 
That's so fun. Okay, man, we live great lives, guys. We live great lives. Fun to be part of the kingdom. Here we go. Yesterday, yet to, we've been laying foundation. Today I'm going to go into something different. I'm going to talk about from this foundation of salvation, everything we've gone over the last couple of days. I want to jump a little bit into the storyline that you've come into. And, uh, and it's not a far segue from what we're talking about. We've been laying foundation for a life of faith and really of wholehearted devotion to Jesus, right? So we landed yesterday. Wholeheartedness is the birthright of every believer. So I want to tell a little bit of the story of kind of how we came to be and what kind of leading us up to present day to set faith, the culture of faith for the hour that we live in and what God's doing all around us and what you have come for such a time as this and what God might be pointing the way to in the future and what we're believing for. And when I say we, I mean all of us. So I want to tell you a little bit about how Fire and Fragrance started, not because it's about Fire and Fragrance, but it has some key words for us that are beyond the name Fire and Fragrance. I believe they're words for a generation. I'm going to touch briefly on God uh, speaking to us about Circuit Rider, not because it's about the organization called Circuit Rider, but again, because some key words that I believe for a generation. You might not be familiar with um, some of these things, but I just, I think they're going to deposit faith in our hearts. And I think you're going to find that many of these things are things God's already spoken to you. He's already shown you. They're already your journal entries. And there's some of the reason why some of you guys even came here is because God's already been speaking to you. And my belief is that some of this will just confirm what's already in your heart, like we said before. So um, I, I've said to you, I think that my wife and I have been in YWAM, I think, I think it's 19 years this week, something like that. We met in YWAM. We did DTS in Maui. Um, we were, uh, she came from Pennsylvania, Lancaster County, and, uh, and I came from Alaska, like you know. And we did DTS together, but um, we were just friends. I mean, there literally was no hope in all of the human universe that she would marry me. There was just no hope. And I was, I was, um, I was dumb but smart enough to know that there was no hope. So we just, we had a friendship. We went on the out, outreach to Cambodia together, had an incredible time. And then long story short, which we'll share probably more when we do some teaching on relationships, you know, we end up getting married. We end up, you know, falling in love, getting married, and, uh, and jumping right back into YWAM essentially. And so our first years of marriage, we went back to Maui. We were there for about four more years on staff. And uh, the whole time was incredible. But I would say at the same time, there was a huge um, discontent in our hearts. It had nothing to do with Maui. had nothing to do with the location. It had to do with our hearts and what we were reading about in Scripture. And here's the point I came to, and many of you probably have felt similar, is that when I would read the New Testament, and then I really started diving into revival and reformation history, reading about the moves of God throughout the centuries. And the more I read, the more discontent I became over my own life. It was like the more I read, the more I thought, you know what? The chasm between me and New Testament Christianity is massive still. And I would read about what, you know, the disciples lived like. I would read about these heroes in history. And I would go, where is this all around me right now? And where, why am I not living this way? Like I said, this was before even some of the movements we might be familiar with now even existed. Or at least you were aware of them. There wasn't much. And so I was so frustrated. I remember out of that frustration... We just set about to get, we got hungrier for God than we'd ever get in, gotten in our lives. We just looked at this and go, let's, let's close the chasm. And I, here's was my guilt, is that people were like, man, you guys are so radical. You're in missions. You're going to all these nations. Like, you know, you're living by, you're living on support. All these things. And, and my friends would, it was easy to find people that we were living more radical than. And it was easy because they would say it. 
But the reality was that my radical was like the most watered-down version of New Testament Christianity you could find anywhere on the pages. So I looked at that and go, they're all calling me radical. But I actually feel like I'm reading about radical. And there's a chasm. Why am I here? We send outreaches out and they would come back and their, their testimony was, it was hard, but I learned a lot. And I was like, man, that's just not what the disciples said when Jesus sent them out. And, then, and it was again, again, again. They'd come back and be like, it was hard, but I learned a lot. And I'm like, I don't know if that's me, worth me giving my life for. That you'd have a hard but learned a lot experience for three months in another nation. Like, surely there must be more. When Jesus sent out his disciples, who had less time with Jesus than we even had with these DTS students probably up to this point, is that they came back and he says, how was it? He goes, everything you said, sick were healed, the blind eyes open, deaf ears open. The lepers were cleansed. And Jesus goes, oh, that's not all. He goes, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And our testimony was it was hard, but I learned a lot. And we got so discontent. Not with anybody, with ourselves. And out of that, we got so hungry for God. And we began to cry out, like, God, we want to see your presence move. We want to, see a, we want to be soaked in a lifestyle of prayer. No longer do we do want to do missions void of a life of intimacy and prayer. And God, we want to see your power, not just so we can feel good about ourselves or have cool testimonies, but because it's how you reach the lost. It's because it's who you are. You still heal the sick. You still move in power. And we just got hungry to see the New Testament walked out in our surroundings. And so this went on for a number of years, and we started to, in our own lives, see it. Tons of personal breakthrough through spiritual hunger. I remember we just, we would carve out spots. They gave me permission to use this dungeon in our downstairs of our kitchen. And nobody wanted it. It was in rat infested and it stank and it was horrible. And I looked at that thing and I go, I want this. I want a place where I can get alone and cry out to God. And so they gave me this spot and I cleaned it all up and got new carpet. And it was like this spot that they had given us that we could go out and spend hours alone with Jesus in this dungeon, uninterrupted, and cry out, God, we want to know you as you can be known. To dive into the pages of Scripture, to build a secret place history in God, like Amy talked about this morning. We got so hungry. Out of that, we just started going everywhere we could that we heard God was moving. I remember going on a trip, and this was, I was hungry for this, but I've not seen it a lot, with a man named um, Todd Bentley. And unfortunately, Todd Bentley became famous later for having a, a significant moral failure and essentially, you know, ruining his first marriage. And that was so sad and so tough and so wrong. It was all of those things. But when I went with him on this trip was in his glory days. And I can tell you, in my life, I have never seen someone move in more power than I saw on that trip. And in one week in Mexico, we saw more salvations and healings than I had seen in five years of missions all over the world. And I was stunned. I was floored. I mean, the miracles were tangible. And we would see that. He would teach or preach. And thousands would be in these little, little, little stadiums. And, and then he would call people for And we would pray for him. I remember a mom coming up to me. And I longed for this, but not seen it much yet. This mom came up to me. And I, they were through a translator. I said, what's wrong with your son? He's a little boy, probably six, seven years old. She goes, he has, he has huge stomach issues. And he has flat feet. And because of it, he has so much pain when he walks. His feet are just completely flat. I go, okay, well, let's just take his shoes off and pray for him. So we pull his shoe off, pull his sock off. And before I can even, like, see anything or figure anything out, his mom is screaming. And I look, I'm just caught. I'm like, what the heck just happened, right? And she's looking down at his feet because they have full arches in them before we even prayed for him. And I was just like, <laughs> and it was one thing after another. It was stunning. 
time with so many things, and it was such a pure gospel, and it was such a pure power of God, and I was, it was that kind of thing that I was hungering for. This was mind-boggling. We would pray for people, and then if they got healed, they would go up and share testimony to build faith. And I remember we went to an ICU, intensive care unit, a hospital. We're like, let's just go and find people and pray for them. I went into a room, and there was a man laying there who just that day had been working on an escalator. And he's working on it. He got stuck on an electric current that electrocuted through his whole body. He was stuck on it until someone came and they literally kicked him so that he could get off the current and he rolled all the way down the escalator. Couldn't walk. Felt, he felt nothing from his waist down. He could kind of sit up, but he said, I can't move my legs and I can't feel anything. Nothing was verified that he was paralyzed, but this was just how he felt. So we prayed for him and I had never seen this before. We're praying for him. I heard of it. And, I, and you gotta know, I'm just like weak. You know, like, immature and full of, still a fair amount of unbelief. No, like, I'm not like this bold guy, like, walk in the name of Jesus. I'm like, God, if you can, if you will, if you feel like it, and if you want to, would you heal this guy? Right? I, right? I was just saying, no, I was just like, I was like, I don't, God, please, I don't know what I have to do, please. You know, like, I don't understand. I just, and I'm just walking out of weakness. And I open my eyes, and he's covered in gold dust. And he looks down, and he's like, what is this? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but I think it's probably good. You know, that's all I knew to say. We prayed for him again. We're like, can you change anything? Can you sit up? And he goes, he tries to sit up. And he does sit up. And he goes, I might feel a little bit better. But it was like a courtesy a little better, you know? You're like, I don't know if he feels any better. Whatever. We pray for him. We move on. We keep praying for other people. Well, that night, I'm at the meeting. I'm praying for people because it's turned into that time. And I hear a testimony behind me that they're translating on the stage because it's just chaos. Both are going on. Stage testimonies. And we're praying for people. And I hear the testimony, I hear this guy going, and I was kicked off of an electric curtain and fell down an escalator. And he goes, and I couldn't walk. And he goes, now I'm standing here today because an hour after they prayed for me, I was discharged from the hospital, fully healed. But God was planting these seeds in our hearts. Now fast forward. We feel like that season we just get hungry and hungry for God, that God leads us to lay everything we're doing down currently in YWAM and to go into a season of just waiting on Him. This is where I meet Amy Ward, who just was with you. And Amy and I begin, in our families, we begin to go after God together, ask Him, what's next? What does He want to do? Long story short, in the midst of that, we get an invitation from Lord and Darlene Cunningham to consider coming to Kona. This was the furthest thing from our radar. We had left Maui. We were in Alaska. We were praying about maybe going to Bethel and joining it, or maybe we go join IHOP, or maybe we start something new. We didn't know. But we had no idea at that time that we'd even ever come back to YWAM. We weren't sure if there were people that shared the same convictions we had in our hearts. And that was not a better or worse thing. We had a little exposure, tiny, and we just didn't know if our hearts really aligned any longer. Now, we didn't know that there was amazing things going on in many other places. So they give us this invitation. We pray about it. Long story short, we feel it's God. And in 2008, we move here after spending about five months driving all across America, meeting with every leader in the body of Christ we could to simply ask them, what is God doing? What is he saying? What's the word of the Lord for this season? So we have driving two cars. Adassa is like a month old, my second oldest. Her first five months of life is crisscrossing the nation in the back of our yellow Subaru. And my son, Asher, just back there for, I mean, hours. And we would just drive, meet with people, and ask them, what is God saying? What is he doing? 
And this was on our way to move to Kona. So during that time, we make all these friends in the body of Christ. We meet so many young leaders that are so hungry for God. And we feel like God's giving us more and more vision that he's raising up an entire generation that wants to live in radical prayer, that wants to live in radical holiness, that wants to live in radical evangelism, that believes that every sphere and every area of a society can be affected by the gospel, that God is raising up a generation thought there was no city too hard, no heart too hard, no place too hard that the gospel couldn't penetrate. And we this conviction was growing in us. That there's a generation growing up that goes, oh, the Muslim world is an inch away from salvation. It's going up going, oh, Europe's days, greatest days are still ahead of it. Post-Christian, forget about it. Revivals coming to Europe. That a, God, a generation was growing up going, we refuse to believe that America is just going to turn further and further away from God. Days of awakening are coming. Yeah. And it was, it was, we were getting more and more convinced that a whole generation was being raised up that goes, we are going to demolish the human trafficking industry. Or yeah. we are going to that. We're going to see Jesus exulting in the business and the marketplace like never before. That a whole generation was growing up with a diversity of passions, but a unity around the gospel. A diversity of expressions, but a unity around wholehearted, zealous Christianity. So we moved to Kona in 2008 with this burning in our hearts. We pioneered a little prayer room on campus as our first thing, which now has turned into the beautiful, wonderful um, air-conditioned prayer room that we now have. At the time, it was a dark, hot, stinky, nasty little prayer room that was an awesome manger for us to get started here. And we went after it, hours a day, kindling our hearts in the place of prayer, establishing a foundation that we would never do mission apart from prayer again. We just went after it with all of our hearts. And from there, one of the kind of moments that was defining for us is about six months into that, 2008, I went to meet one of my now becoming close friends, a man named Sean Foyt, who's now a worship leader at Bethel, but then was starting something called Burn 24-7. And we met at a bachelor party on that road trip, randomly, never met him in my life, and we spent three or four hours, missed the entire bachelor party, talking about what God was doing on the earth. Stunned by the similarity of our journeys and the passion of our hearts, and God knit us together. And He's a He's a lifelong friend, and we have the privilege of doing so much life together now. And uh, at the time, though, we meet and we decide together. This was it. This was our hypothesis. We go. God's raising up a generation that the world's never seen before. And our hypothesis was that the millennial generation is going to be one of the greatest generations in all of human history. Yeah. The majority of the people in this room, some of you might even be, the, the, the lines are blurred. The majority of us in this room uh, would be millennial generation. And our conviction was that there are a lot of lies the enemy spoken over millennials, and they're all lies. Yeah. That this is going to be the most committed, radical, extravagant, loving generations that the world had ever seen. And our hypothesis was that God was going to be raising up new wineskins of training that would catalyze the call of God on their lives yeah. into the nations, into the hardest and darkest, into yeah. places that people believed were impossible, this generation would say, no, there are no impossibilities yeah. in the gospel. Yeah. So we went somewhere that we could pray that we felt like would be one of the hardest places to believe for breakthrough. So we prayed, we thought about where should we go? I remember we were thinking about Afghanistan. We were thinking about all these places that both he and I had been already. That we thought, let's go there and ask for a blueprint because it would be appropriate to the context to ask for a blueprint in a hard place and believe God could change it, right? So we settled on flying to Amsterdam. Because the red light district in Amsterdam, in my mind, in many places I've been, is visibly one of the darkest places I've ever been in my life. 
It's one of the most visibly degrading places of human dignity that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And we thought, let's go there and ask for God's heart so that red light districts would be transformed all over the world by a generation that would believe it's possible, that would believe the gospel. So we flew there for three days. We waited on God. There's this little house of prayer that YWAM has right in the heart of the red light district. It's unbelievable. It's so beautiful. It's a place of peace and power in the middle of all of the depravity. And they've seen so much fruit and so many salvations and God do so many things in that place. But we went there for three days and we just waited on God. All day long, just praying, God, what are you saying? What is it? What do you want to say to us? And on the final night, I was walking home from our last night. And we had, God had confirmed many things. We felt lots of things, but it wasn't anything super specific. It was just a reinforcement of like, I'm in this. I'm doing this. You can believe for this generation. You should be believing this way. It was like an impartation of faith. But on that final night as I was walking home, I had to walk through the last bit of the red light district to get to where we were staying. And again, I was overwhelmed. I was just overwhelmed. Like, again, because, you know, having daughters, having sons, it changes everything. That young, that young lady in that window is someone, some father's daughter. Yeah. Right? That, that young man who doesn't know his identity and doing things that he should never do because he doesn't know who he is is someone's son. He was a little boy at one time. Yeah. That girl was a little girl at one time. And as a dad, you just get messed up by these things, right? And I was just so overwhelmed and walking through. And, and, and because we were in prayer, it was, I was just already three days. It was just in me. And I just continued the prayer going, God, if red light districts can't change, then the gospel's not real. Wow. But if the gospel's real, then yeah. this place must change. Yeah. And there has to be a solution. And I began to pray and ask and go, God, this place has been here for hundreds of years and Christianity surrounds it. This is a blemish on the report card of Christianity. This is not okay any longer. This is not okay. I began to think of issues like that, that, that are in the red light district all over the world and thought how in Christianity, how myself, how easy it is to turn a blind eye and pretend like these things aren't happening. And it was like all in this moment, this thing was hitting me going, it's not okay any longer. I can't live like that. Am I going to be like Wilberforce and look around me and go, slavery is demonic and evil and I'll spend my whole life to end it? Or am I going to live in the luxury of comfortable Christianity and let life pass me by? And it was this feeling, this moment of like, this is not okay. And at the same time, it's this sense of like, there's a whole generation that's being raised up right now that's going to believe this is not okay. Yeah. That the gospel's been on the earth for 2,000 years and there are still 2 billion people that have yeah. never heard the name of Jesus wow. one time. That's not okay, right? That there are whole languages, actually hundreds of them, several thousand languages on the earth almost that still don't have a single page of the scripture translated. And I have access to hundreds of Bibles all around me. It's not okay that children are being brought up in homes of, homes, sorry, of a divorce epidemic. I go, it's not okay anymore. And this thing was just hitting me of like, it's not okay. The gospel's real. 2,000 years of Christianity ought to look a little bit different all around us. Us, right? And this hope and challenge was being intermingled in my heart. So I just began to say and cry out to God like any of you would have. In the red, walking through the streets. I didn't know if anyone spoke English. It didn't matter to me. In these moments, you don't care what anybody thinks. Going, God, what is the solution? What is the answer? I mean, I know it's the gospel, but the gospel's been here for 2,000 years and still this place stands. What is the solution? God, what is the answer? We've been three days crying out, what is the answer? And I feel the Lord for the first time drop something in my spirit 
that I could put language to him. He, he put language to him. He said, God, Andy, the, the answer is burning ones. He goes, I need a generation that is so on fire that the fire in them is hotter than the fire around them in the world. Yeah. Yeah. A generation like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who couldn't be burnt by the fiery furnace because the fire in them was hotter than the fire of the fiery furnace. Yeah. I need a generation who is so consumed with me. And I, and I, I know you don't know what I mean when I say that because we talked about for the last second days. I'm not, the last several days. I'm not, I'm not talking about an exception to the norm that we look at and go, wow, aren't they awesome? No, I'm talking about authentic, wholehearted Christianity where we get consumed like a disease. We get consumed. It consumes all of who we are, our eyes, our mouths, our ears, our lives, our hands, our emotions. All of it gets touched by the all-consuming gospel. We get gripped that, that any disease that would consume would not even compare to the disease of the gospel that would consume our lives. I'm talking about being fully consumed by Jesus. Him affecting every decision, every area of our life. And I knew in that moment that burning ones were a people who were holy and fully set apart to Jesus to do anything that he would ask, to go anywhere that he would say, and that they were the hope for the red light districts of the world. And so I began to sing, like any of you would have, on the street, loudly, boldly, and probably off-key. And I just began to sing, rise up, burning ones, rise up, burning ones, rise up, burning ones. And it was like hope, an arrow of hope hit my heart. And I thought, this doesn't have to stay here for the next 20 years. My children don't have to walk these same streets and wonder why the gospel hasn't brought transformation yet. Rise up, burning ones, rise up, burning ones. And I went back to the base and I grabbed my little guitar that I brought with me. And I went up in this glass room that overlooks the whole city. And I sang over the city and I began to sing, rise up, burning ones. And the Lord began to drop these phrases in my heart. The fire and the fragrance are permeating. The atmosphere is changing. Rise up, burning ones. Rise up, burning ones. The fire and the fragrance are permeating. The atmosphere is changing. Rise up, burning ones. Rise up, burning ones. And I just began to declare and prophesy that a generation was coming that could change cities like Amsterdam forever. And these phrases were new to me, but I knew what the words meant. Fire to me was what I shared with you the other day, the song of Solomon, the love of the bride for the bridegroom that gets to such an extent where she says, the fire, my love for you, it burns like a blazing fire, like the very flame of God. And I knew that fragrance to be Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians where he says that we become the very aroma of Christ to a lost world. And I understood it was like it was all walking into my heart at the same time to go, if a generation will burn, then the fragrance of Christ will be smelled by all of those around you. Yeah. And you have no fragrance if you have no fire. But if you have a fire, you can't not have a fragrance. Yeah. And at the lost in the world, the, the red light district, these young ladies who are, just don't know who they are, and these young men who just don't know who they are, they're enslaved in, a, in this whole system. If yeah. they would smell the aroma of love yeah. from a burning heart, then nothing could hold them back from the love of their Messiah. And this fire and this fragrance made sense to me. It was like it clicked to my heart that it wasn't about being the most talented. It wasn't about being the most anointed. It wasn't about stages and microphones. It wasn't about one leader leading the masses. It wasn't going to happen in just one great stadium event. And all of a sudden the tides were turned. And we're just going to wake up one day and God would have just done it all. It was 
thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands in Minnesota and in Florida and in Norway and in Brazil and in Cambodia and in Nepal and it was thousands and it was thousands and it was thousands who would wake up in the morning and burn for Jesus. And that fire in them, come on, would become a fragrance. And you couldn't Come on, you couldn't keep it in the church. You couldn't keep it out of the marketplace. You couldn't keep it out of the schools. You couldn't keep it out of our high schools. You couldn't keep it out of our universities. You couldn't keep it out of our homes. And you couldn't keep it out of our neighborhoods. You couldn't keep it out of the workplace. You couldn't keep it out of any area of society. Wherever they went, they burned. And everywhere they went, the fragrance and the aroma of a loving, justifying Messiah went with them. And I saw that transformation was not just churches getting on fire or big tent meetings or big stadium gatherings, but that transformation was the masses of Christianity entering into wholeheartedness. It's you and I in our weakness, in our immaturity, burning for the living God. And everywhere we would go, that fragrance would go. And I, for time, I do want to jump in to the circuit rider story too, but I want to say this, is that for me, and I always say this, the staff, he always says this, and I do always say this, is that for me, we're uh, 10 years in. Amy and I just moved here 10 years ago. We moved here together. A number of us moved in here together. Some have moved on and are leading in other places now. Some are still here. But 10 years ago, a few days ago, we moved here. And, and 10 years ago, you know, in a few months, we were in Amsterdam, and the Lord is speaking to us. And when I was flying home, I knew that we had to start a school here, because that was the next thing we needed to do. Prayer room, they said, now you got to start a school. And I was like, well, I don't even know what kind of school to start. And they're like, well, you got to name it something, because now we run focused DTSs, and what's yours going to be focused on? I was like, can you run a focused DTS on Revival? Can you run one on just, like, being zealous for God? You know, obviously, they're all meant to be that, so I didn't have a name. And on the flight home, I'm like, oh, what are we going to do? And he goes, I already told you. And don't mistake it for a brand name. It's a prophecy for a generation, but it's fire and it's fragrance being married together in a generation. And you got to know, from 10 years ago, praying in that musty, stinky, dark little prayer room and, and half the campus still wondering if we were a little strange at all, is that every time another school starts and, and you, every one of you is a walking miracle, you're, you're not just faces to me, and you're not just names. I saw you 10 years ago on the streets of Amsterdam. I saw you then. I saw you then. I knew you were coming, though I wouldn't have known your names then, and I wouldn't have known your faces. But you're never just another school to me. I saw you 10 years ago, and I knew you were coming. And because of that, I already know who you are. I'm cheating. He already told me. Who you were. And he already told me what you're pre-wired for. And he already told me the impact you were going to have all over the world. He already told me how you're going to change your hometowns and how you're going to change nations all over the earth. He already told me how some of you in this room are going to be the first ones to see a people group come to Jesus that have never heard the gospel before. He already told me that many of you in this room would affect the Muslim world forever. He already told me that some of you would light a fire in Brazil and some of you would light a fire in Europe that would never go out. Yeah. He already told me that some of you would light fires across the United States that would lead to universities being impacted and changed forever. He already told me that you would lead marriages that reverse the curse of divorce in our society. He already told me so much about you. So I already know who you are. I'm sorry. And I saw you those 10 years ago, and I believed you would come, but I had no idea what God would really do. So when I see you for the first time and I greet you on Monday, you've got to know I'm not just like, oh, cool, it's another school. We do this all the time. No way. 
you know, the fulfillment of 10 years of intercession and crying out to God. And from Lord and Darlene, you're the fulfillment of decades of crying out to God and believing for the earth to be changed by a generation. You are the result of decades and decades of prayer. I know who you are. I know why your eyes are already bright. I know why that fire already burns inside of you. And I just want you to know the fragrance of your life is going to touch the nations of the earth beyond what you could ever imagine. So this thing launches out of that. 2009, we get messed up, guys. Mega messed up. First school, I think, I don't fully remember, maybe 20 students, 25 students. And we just had the wildest, rawest, most amazing time. And it's been an incredible journey ever since then. I want to give you one more word, and then we'll just stand in prayer today. Is that around 2010, now we're a couple years in, Amy has an encounter. And you're going to get to know Amy over the time here. Amy is a peculiar human. She's one of the most amazing people that I've ever known in my entire life. Holly and I know that we will grow old with Philip and Amy. We can't wait to be in rocking chairs next door to each other. Still watching a generation rumble into revival. We know we're lifelong, committed, covenant friends. And we are committed. There is no plan B. Let me put it that way. There is no plan B. We never got Christian insurance when we signed up for this thing. Uh, there, there is no plan B. This is, we're in this and to the end. And, uh, and so we have the privilege of getting to run together long term. And we're 10 years to 12 years or 13 years into this journey. And I don't know another person on the earth like Amy. You only find Amy's in history at the foundations of movements. And you only find them in history that the very foundation of God wanting to burst them. And I'm not saying fire and fragrance is that movement. There's something far bigger than any brand name, right? And we're just one of the many YWAM ministries that we love of our YWAM family. But Amy is at the core. When God raises up an Amy, it's at the foundation of a movement. And she has this incredible relationship with Jesus that's not better than any of our relationships with Jesus. God just set her apart for a distinct purpose, just like we're all set apart for distinct purposes, right? But she's like this lightning rod for revelation. And we're like this hilarious team because um, my encounters are all like, you know, I read Philippians 1 and it, and it was so amazing. I laid on the floor for 30 minutes because I just got so struck by one word out of Philippians chapter 1. And I just didn't want to get off the floor. Those are like my greatest encounters with God are always in the scriptures. And Amy's like getting woken up in the middle of the night by angels and visitations and like wild stuff. And I love it. The way that the Lord put us together, working together is so fun. So in 2010, she has, and please don't be spooked out by this or think this is weird based on your background. Just go straight to Bible verses on this. But she has an angelic encounter, which is very biblical. And you've got to know when angels come, it's not like you don't usually you know, get out your party hat and blow a little kazoo. Uh, every time an angel comes in the scripture, they fall on their faces and wish to die. And I tend to think that when angels come, it's because you really have a hard time hearing. And God's like, I can't risk this one. I've got to send my angel. I've whispered it 37 times and didn't hear it. So get down there, buddy. Make it clear. Scare the heck out of them until they believe me. Right? So you look at it. Daniel, Joseph, they all they fear for their lives, man. Those angels showed up and they're like, no. <laughs> I'm listening, right? People end up mute when angels come. People end up all kinds of stuff, right? So I'm glad the angel showed up to Amy and not me. I have never one time desired me. Like, it would be so cool if Gabriel just showed up. No, I'd want to die if he showed up, right? I'm just like, I'm just fine if Jesus just keeps showing up. Send Gabriel to someone else and scare them. Like, let's, I'll just hang out with Jesus, right? So Amy has this angelic count. It's not weird. It's not ultra charismatic. It's Bible verses. And the, the angelic encounter is this. It's an angel dressed in colonial clothing. And she'll probably share this more in depth sometime. I want to give you one line from it. She's, the angel says, and angels are just messengers from God. They're not to be worshipped. They just bring messages. 
And the angel says this, says, I have come to bring a message, and the message is this, that God is raising up a generation, he's releasing them, they will be fiery-eyed revivalists, was the phrase. And they will crisscross the nation unto the nations, and they will carry messages in messenger bags, and those messages will be about revolution unto reformation. And then the last line is that they will be likened unto the circuit riders of old. She writes it all down and, and gives it to me the next day, and I'm just like, what do you do with that? (laughs) <laughs> like, what does this mean? Like, are we in trouble? Did, did we do something wrong? Why did the... I'm like, I don't, I'm not that excited. I'm just like, why did the angel have to come? <laughs> I, we, were, we were doing okay. Like, let's just, we're just doing our little prayer reveal and believing for this, but why? Are we... What's going to happen, right? So we have this... She has this crazy encounter. I don't know what else to do because my default is to dive into scripture, dive into prayer. But for me, the clue was the circuit riders of old. So I spent the next year reading every book on the history of the circuit riders that I could find. They were a movement of history that few have probably ever heard of, started by John Wesley and the Methodist Revival. So the Methodist Revival in the 1700s spills out into England, bursts the first great awakening. We don't have time to go into it all. Out of that, a young guy named Francis Asbury sent to America as a Methodist missionary, and Methodism explodes as the fastest growing revival movement on the earth. In America, through Francis Asbury and this selfless band of 4,000 circuit riders who loaded up on horses and rode hundreds of miles to find the homes scattered across the frontier to share the gospel with them. Half of them died by 33 years old. They had no salaries, next to nothing. Many of them had very little education, and they would memorize portions of the Bible because they couldn't even read it. And they had about three to five sermons they would memorize, and all they would do is preach the gospel all across the continent of America. They were known to ride 100 miles for one house. Their, their mottos were no place too far, no people too ignorant, no place too poor, that the gospel can't break in and bring change. horse. Everything in me was like, I want to ride a horse. These guys were radical. Everything about them laid down. But they were known for their joy. They were known for their simplicity. They were known for healing, signs and wonders. They were the fastest growing revival movement anywhere in the world in the early 1800s on the shores of America. They are still credited today as largely having paved any sort of Christian foundation in the foundation of America is largely due to the circuit riders and what they carry across this country. I go into way more, but I don't have time. So we, I spent a year studying all this. In the midst of that, we link up with some very close friends, Brian and Christy Brent. We meet them. Brian's coming to teach in a few quarters. He's one of my closest friends, or a few weeks. He's one of my closest friends. And uh, we, this is what Brian and Christy say. You've got to love this. They go, hey, um, so we heard about your encounter. And because uh, and they had gotten to know us and really prided out of us, they'd fallen in love with our Fire and Fragrance community. We, had, we were just seeing some remarkable little moves of God that just knit them to us. And uh, they pulled it out of us and essentially said, hey, so are you guys going to kind of like die with this as a good journal entry or are you going to do something about it? And I was like, I'm going to get a horse. <laughs> So we met and we prayed. We cried out to God as we always do. And the Lord spoke and he says, I, I did speak this a year afterwards. He goes, I want you guys to launch a school. And you don't need to know what everything it's about. What you call the school of circuit riders. I'm like, that's terrible. No one will come. They're going to think it's like a motorcycle gang. You know, you know, do Facebook circuit riders then. It was only motorcycle gangs. 
and uh, people aren't going to have any idea what they're coming to. It's terrible marketing. We found the worst picture of a guy on a horse you could ever find on literally Google. It was, it was literally like bad Microsoft Word clip art, if you remember that. And I was like, that guy looks depressed. The horse is half dead. Why would anyone want to come and ride a half dead horse as a depressed preacher? I was like, this is not going well for us. Let's throw school up. No one will come and we'll go back to what we were doing before. And, and so we do this whole deal. I remember even someone called and literally asked if they were going to learn to ride horses at the school. And I was like, I really want to, but we don't have any horses. I was like, do you even know what this is? And they were like, no. They're like, what is it? And I'm like, I don't know either. But I promise you it's going to be amazing if you come. So long story short, the five-week school, we run that summer. We don't know how, where, or where they came from, but 300 students show up for us. Out of the blue. It was shocking to all of us. Maybe 100 of them were our own community here, and another 200 come from places all over. And we joined together for five weeks, and God moves more mightily than we ever could have imagined, obliterating unbelief in our hearts over what God could do on the earth. It was around the same time that Warren Cunningham is giving you some pillar words that I think will resonate with your own words. Warren is preaching in Yohanakor. He's going to be sharing tonight. I can't wait. I can't wait. I was praying this morning and felt like God was going to do something fresh through Lauren tonight. Uh, those of us that are on staff here, we get to hear him a lot, and it's never, it's always amazing. It's never not amazing. But I just felt prayer. Lauren has something special for us as a community tonight. So I'm so excited to see what it is, and I want to press in for it. But he's preaching on a Thursday night. This is around the same time. And he says, you know, we've heard a lot of stories. So sometimes the staff, you can kind of blank out because you heard the story and you're kind of waiting to catch up when he says his next thing. So I'm not totally paying great attention like I should have. And then all of a sudden I hear him and he starts telling new stories. And he talks about how he had prophesied that the Berlin Wall would fall. And he was so ridiculed for it. He was shamed for it because how could you say such a thing until the Berlin Wall fall, fell? And then he says about how he actually talked about how all of communism was going to collapse. And literally people said it was impossible. There's no way that's going to happen. It's absolutely impossible. And he was ridiculed until communism fell. And then he talked about how he went to South Korea in the 60s, 70s. And he said, you guys are going to be one of the most economic prosperous and one of the most largest mission sending nations in the world. And they laughed at it, the pastors. And they said, there's no way. We don't even have cars. Look outside. There's only bikes. And he goes, plus, it's illegal for us to leave our country. We can't even get passports. It's not even legal right now. And Warren goes, I'm just telling you what I felt like God said. That's Warren, right? He's just the simply obedient, jolly lover of Jesus. And until, you know, years later, South Korea is the sixth largest economy on the earth and the second largest sending, mission sending nation on the whole earth is South Korea. And so he tells me, and I'm like, this is not Lauren's normal norm. He doesn't really talk about himself like this. I go, and so I'm like, perk up, like, what is he about to say? And then he says this, he goes, what I'm about to tell you, I feel stronger than any of the words that I shared with you just now. And I'm like, oh, dang. <laughs> and he says, in the next number of years, said seven at that point, he goes, in the next seven years, we are going to see more salvations than in all of human history added together wow. in the 2,000 years before. It was like a big bomb dropped in the Ohana court. And everywhere he went, he began to proclaim this word that we were heading into one of the greatest harvests in human history. And certainly even over the last number of years, this is so true in certain parts of the world where right now there are more Muslims turning to Jesus than any time in human history. We had a, a, a guy in Indonesia who's literally planted thousands of churches. He'd be one of the most fruitful workers in Indonesia. He's lived there for 25 years, and he told us at that time, I was stunned. He said, just so you guys are aware, Indonesia is the largest Muslim nation in the world, highest population. And he says, just so you guys are aware, where I'm from, every 20 seconds, 
a Muslim is turning to Jesus in Indonesia. And I was like, what? And I remember a year two, year later, I saw him again, and I had been sharing that because it's so faith-building. And I, but I was afraid I'd exaggerated and sat over time. I was like, well, maybe I got, maybe it wasn't 20 seconds. You know what I mean? So I, a year later, I found him and I said, hey, you got Jim, was I right about this? Did I have it? Because I want to make sure I'm not exaggerating the testimony. He goes, oh, yeah, I did say that. He goes, but actually, in our, in our new statistics, we're finding it's every 15 seconds. We are living in a day like never before. That circuit rider school blows up. God bombards our hearts with faith, and he asks us a question. He says, would you believe me if I said that the soil in America was right for a move of God, even though everyone in the world would tell you it's not? And we said, yes, let's try it. So we sent 300 to Orange County out of that school to bombard the streets with one question, is the harvest ripe in America? Not because it was about America, it was just our immediate step of obedience. So we went there, and the 300, they were 18, 19, 20-year-olds like people in this room and, and, and mixed ages. And uh, we hit the streets with that one question, and everywhere we went, we were so stunned that what the enemy was saying over America was not true, and that many in the body of Christ had picked up on the report of the enemy and were repeating it instead of saying what heaven was saying over America. One of our guys who now lives long-term in Nepal got on a bus on his way to meet the rest of the people to go out and share the gospel. And on the bus, it was like a 10-minute ride. He said, you know what? These guys can't get off the bus. And he thinks to himself, let me see if the soil's right. Goes up to the bus driver while they're driving and says, hey, can I share something with the bus? And the bus driver's probably so caught off guard. He's like, yeah, I guess so. So while the bus is driving, he stands at the front of the bus and he shares his testimony with everybody on the bus. Gets their attention and talks about his whole history, meeting Jesus, does a full-blown altar call, and the whole back row of the bus raises their hands and they want to give their hands to Wild. And testimony after testimony like this. One young guy, 18, 19 years old, goes down to the Huntington Beach Pier, and there's all these guys fishing down there, if you've ever been there. And uh, he goes up to a guy, you know, and this is all simple. It's not like crazy. It's all simple kind of caveman Christianity. And he walks up and he goes, hey, do you, do you know, uh, he goes, can I pray for you for anything? And the guy just mocks him. Older guy, he goes, he just makes fun of him. He goes, whatever. He goes, why don't you just pray and catch a fish? He goes, I'm the only one out here who hasn't caught a fish today. Just kind of making fun of him. And the young guy's like, all right. Lays his hand on him and says, Jesus, I just pray that this man would catch a fish the, t- the moment he says fish. His rod goes, <laughs> he reels up the fish. He's so stunned. Older man. He reels it up. He's so blown away. Turns to this young guy. He goes, I don't even understand this. He goes, but your God is real. He goes, tell me, tell me more. God shares the gospel with him. He gets saved on the spot. He gets testimony. We began to do these schools all across America, England, Fiji, South Africa, South Korea, Singapore, these little evangelism intensives that were about one thing. They were about believing that the gospel was powerful again. They were about believing that the love of God was for all. They were about believing there was no heart too hard. I remember when we went to England, everyone told us because we were like, we were, we were on a roll. The testimonies that would come out of these one or two week schools were usually three to four hundred salvations. They were healings that were mind-boggling in America from blind eyes and deaf ears to people getting out of wheelchairs. And then we were on our way to England. I remember, man, the, the voice of the cynic that loves to agree with the enemy. He goes, hey, whatever you do, don't expect in England what you saw in America. Because it's really hard there. Do we have any Brits in here? And they were like, don't expect the same thing. And we were like, that's so strange because it's the same gospel. 
And I just remember thinking, like, do you think Jesus ever looks down from heaven and he's like, like, he's like, I could really move there. I couldn't really move there. Let's avoid that one. But I could really move there. And I thought, man, Jesus, that famous declaration he makes, the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. He goes, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers in the harvest field. Matthew 9, 27, 28. He says that, yeah, but the context of that is over the rebellious, idolatrous, religious nation of Israel that's about to kill him. And he looks out and goes, man, the harvest is ripe. Come on. It's never been a ripeness issue. It's always been a laborer issue. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. And he looked out over England and goes, it's been right for 2,000 years, just waiting for some people to believe it. Yeah. Wesley believed it. Yeah. Circuit riders believed it, right? So we went there with a little bit of like, let's just see the gospel move the way we've been seeing it. First, time, first night we were there, I remember so clearly, we talked about faith and and talked about the, the king who didn't strike the ground. He struck it three times instead of six. And he gets rebuked by the prophet and goes, man, you'd have had total victory if you'd have just had a little more passion, if you'd have really struck the ground. And because of it, he didn't have total victory. And I preached on that. And I said, it's time that we declare victory over England. It's time we declare that cynicism is over, the unbelief is over. But we're going to have to strike the ground. And so we, we preached on this. And literally the rooms, like yesterday, the room starts shouting. Because it's like a ground striking moment. And so they start pounding the ground and they're shouting and it's getting wild. And there's no music, there's no ambiance, it's just a room full of people shouting. And it finished, it, it starts to wind down and then it goes, you, you, even yesterday, it, it, it wound back up, right? And then it started wound down and then wound back up and I was like, I don't know what's going on here, but this is God. And I just get off the stage, there's literally no one up there and there's a room just shouting their heads off and they were recording the session for teaching. So it finally winds down, and I'm like, that was crazy. That was God. And the sound guy comes up to me and goes, bro, I've never seen anything like that. He goes, that was 11 minutes without a break in the shout of victory over England. And I have a Brit come up to me, one of these amazing guys that was in the school, and he goes, man, he goes, as soon as we started shouting, he goes, I said to myself, this is such an American thing. <laughs> and he goes, a minute in, two minutes in, he's like, ah, oh, this is so American. And then he goes, three minutes in, I go, I am so sick of my apathy. And he goes, four minutes in, I started lifting my voice. <laughs> and he goes... He goes, I know God made it go that long so that every British voice in here would be heard declaring it's an hour of victory. We go out, we hit the streets, go into these little Muslim neighborhoods, all these places, and, and in those two weeks saw almost 300 salvations on the streets of London. One of the guys went out, one of my favorite stories, he goes out, finds a lady on a bench, he goes, hey, um, and he just goes right in. He goes, hey, have you ever heard of Jesus? He's real bold. He's one of our leaders, lives in India now. And, he, uh, and she's like, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in Jesus. She's real smug about it. He's like, he goes, well, do you have any sickness in your body? Because I'll prove to you Jesus is real because you're going to get healed. And she's like, she's like, she's not prepared to not go down with the fight. She goes, nope, I'm totally healthy. And he's like, ugh. He goes, and this is what he has drops in his mind. He goes, how about this? He goes, why don't you come with me? He goes, I'm going to stop people, and if they have physical pain in their body, we're going to pray for them together, including you. And if they're not healed, my God's not real. Wow. And she's like, she's like, I'm in. Now, you don't just say this all the time, right? <laughs> gift of faith came on him. It was a moment. Talks, so gift of faith is in the Bible, and this is that moment. He knew. He knew in his spirit 
that he could, because you, you wouldn't want to just test God like this at all times, right? But he knew in his spirit that God was speaking to him. So they walk down the street, and you know God's got these things figured out. So literally the first five people that he stops, just total strangers, he'd be like, hey, we're just out here praying for people, bringing the atheists in. And he goes, do you have any immediate pain in your body? The first five, they have some kind of pain so that they actually would know if it left, right? In other words, they have neck pain or back pain or shoulder pain. I don't know what it was. One after the other, every time they pray, one after the other is healed. And after the fifth one, the atheist looks at him and goes, your God is real. And she gives her life to Jesus. word to us was about wholeheartedness in a generation, then the circuit rider word to us was about the power of the gospel bringing transformation, and that it was simple, and it was through the masses. It was about you and I. The fire and fragrance was about the masses walking in wholeheartedness. Then circuit riders was about the masses believing in the power of the gospel again. And you didn't have to be a rock star, all star, charismatic personality to bring the gospel everywhere that we went. It was a, it was a revelation of faith. Right now, our, we've said 60 from our last Fire and Fragrance DTS. They just arrived today in Orange County to meet up with 100 other circuit riders. And they leave in about five days to go to 200 university campuses across America with one thing, the simple gospel. Over the last number of years, we have watched again and again, is whether it's in the nations through our long-term fire and fragrance teams, whether it's in America or England or some of these places where our circuit rider teams have been, is that there is no place too hard. There's no heart too hard. And if we would walk in wholeheartedness, that burning fire inside of us, that the natural result is the fragrance of Christ and the lost come running to the fragrance of Jesus. Last piece I'll tell is in the circuit rider journey, we got linked up with Lou Engel. Do you guys have 10 more minutes in here? How many of you guys know who Lou Engel is? How many of you don't know who Lou Engel is? Because then I'll, I'll know whether... Okay, so Lou is an amazing man who started something called The Call in 2000 when 400,000 people gathered on the National Mall of Washington, D.C., all young adults, believing for revival in America and the ending of abortion. Those were his mandates that he believed God put forth towards him, that he would believe for an awakening in America and injustice would be broken. And so that was in 2000, 400,000 young adults, one of the largest gatherings ever on the mall. There have been bigger ones, and there have been some that size, but one of the largest ever to pray and fast for 12 hours fasting, prayer, on the National Mall, believing for awakening America. That started a tipping point for this, the call gatherings all across America and different nations with those same mandates. My, many of my friends and many of, that would be in, in mid-30s like me, we were massively affected by the movement of the call, prayer and fasting. It was like every time Lou spoke, we were ready to fast for the rest of our lives. Every time he spoke, we were ready to dive back in intercession for the rest of our lives. He laid a foundation in our lives. Well, through Circuit Riders, we began to build a friendship with Lou. And Lou is a lightning rod in the body of Christ. He's a you know, significant leader in the body of Christ, in the charismatic world, but also even into other worlds. And our friendship with him was over God speaking to us that we were not only called into this, what he would call a John the Baptist movement, but it was also a Jesus movement that we were coming into. And that John, as John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, that a John the Baptist prayer and fasting movement was to prepare the way for a Jesus movement, even greater than the Jesus movement of the 60s and the 70s. And our friendship was built over believing that the day and the hour of another Jesus movement was upon us. And so around the same time as the birth of Circuit Riders, we went to Lou's living room with a prophetic word for him. 
And that word was, is there was a transition coming to the call. And it was transitioning from the call to the send. And it was going to be about a major mobilization of young people to be willing to go anywhere for the gospel. From their own neighbors to the unreached all over the world. And that it was going to be marked by signs, wonders, and gospel proclamation in stadiums. And that a man, the mantle of Billy Graham, the great grace evangelist of our generation, would fall on a whole generation. And this was the word we gave him. Now, when we first said it to him, he stands up and he's kind of, he's loose, wild. He has no voice because he's prayed so long and hard throughout his life. He talks, he has no voice. And he goes, I, I don't know, guys. Because I'm just not an evangelist. I'm just not an evangelist. He's filling stadiums with intercession, prayer, and fasting. But he's never moved into signs, wonders, gospel proclamation, and ascending movement. So two days we meet together. We have an amazing time. On the second day, a friend of his calls with a word for him. And he can't get a hold of him because we're meeting. So he calls six times until Lou finally gives his phone to his assistant and goes, please go answer this. Something must be up. Assistant comes back in and goes, guys, you've got to interrupt the meeting. You've got to hear this. He puts the phone down, speakerphone. We're all in there. And it's a friend of Lou's. And Lou, the guy goes, hey, I was woken up by Jesus this morning. He goes, it was crazy. I have a word for you. Test it. He goes, there's a transition coming to the call. He goes, it's going to be signs and wonders. You're going to fill your stadiums now. It's going to be about gospel proclamation. And word for word, it literally says, and the mantle of Billy Graham is going to fall on a whole generation. And Lou, Lou's so wild, right? He stands up and he goes, the call is becoming the set. <laughs> he stops his leg. And history gets made in his heart. Lou starts preaching this ekbalo message, which is the word for thrust forth laborers in Matthew 9, 27, 28. He says these laborers are going to be thrust all over the world. He begins preaching it everywhere he goes. He kind of changes his message. He's still calling people to prayer and fasting, but he's now calling it a prayer fasting. And would you be willing to be thrust anywhere in the world by the power of God to reach the lost? And this message just lands like electricity in his heart. So we start rumbling together. Circuit riders, fire fragrance, YWAM, Lou, across these different places, different nations, with this message that ascending movement is coming. Fast forward. 2015, we're meeting with Lou again, and we're four years down the road, and he's a little bit discouraged. We're in Pasadena. We're sitting in his house, around his pool, Brian and I, and he looks us in the eyes and he goes, guys, God spoke this word to us four years ago. He goes, but we haven't seen it yet. Stadiums filled, signs and wonders, gospel proclamation. He goes, we haven't seen it. He goes, but the Lord spoke to me and said, now is the time. And he goes, but the call is dwindling. My gatherings have gone from 100,000 down to 15,000. He goes, I'm not gathering like I used to. And he says, I don't have any money. The call is totally broke. I don't have money to rent a stadium. Maybe we believed we were to do one for this. He goes, but the Lord spoke to me. And he goes, guys, I only have one asset to my entire name because the guys just live wild this whole life. He goes, and it's this home. It was a gift and it's worth a million dollars. He goes, the Lord spoke to me and I'm selling my home to rent the stadium for one day, believing that it would be a tipping point in the nation. It would be a tipping point unto what God spoke to us. And we're like in tears. And he goes, he has seven kids. He goes, I called all my kids and I said to him, I go, kids, this is your only inheritance, this house. I have nothing else. He goes, but I feel that I'm supposed to sell it to believe for a tipping point. He goes, but I won't do it unless you guys feel it's right because this is your inheritance. And every one of his kids says the same thing. They say, Dad, you gave us an inheritance far greater than money and houses. We get blown out. We're like, oh my God. We're in tears, all of us. And we're like, Lou, we're with you. Let's do it. Now is the time, right? So this thing starts to gain a little bit of momentum. We go into 40 days of prayer and fasting together for a breakthrough in ascending movement. Signs and wonders. Everything we've been talking about. Wholeheartedness. This gospel awakening, right? Jesus movement. 
And now through the fall that, that we're moving forward, that this whole thing's going to cost over $2 million. He sells his house to make a million dollar down payment on a stadium. But the problem is no one's signing up to come. 100,000 people in the Coliseum in LA, and we've got like 7,000 registrations. That's an empty Coliseum, right? So we go all the way through prayer fasting. We're like, maybe we miss God. Lou's like, maybe I miss God. Maybe we shouldn't do this. We're discouraged. He goes to Singapore to preach. While he's there in December, the gathering's going to be in April. We're four months out from a massive gathering, only with a million dollars, a million and a half short, and, and nobody signing up. He goes to Singapore. He preaches the message that I just shared with you at Balo. Now is the time, this Jesus movement. But he, he says, I'm doing this gathering in America, and we're calling it Azusa now. It's the Azusa revival, the GAN, that God would pour out. And the Singapore church, this, we've since gotten to know this pastor well, he says, we're with you. Singapore's with America, and we're with you heart and soul. He goes, we're going to take an offering so that you know we're behind you. And the church takes a $400,000 offering for the Senate, for this, for this gathering, right? Lose stunned. Well, not only that, but one couple writes a million-dollar check in the offering. And that church takes a $1.4 million offering for a nation not their own, a gathering they wouldn't even be at, to believe the word of the Lord over a tipping point to a sending movement that would touch the nations of the earth. From that day forward, two to 3,000 people a day started registering for Azusa now. Something broke in the spirit. And by the time we came to April, there were 110,000 registrations that had signed up for Azusa now, believing that a tipping point was coming. We gathered that April and it, or that day and it rained, so they say about 70,000 people came, and that stadium day was incredible. It was everything that the call had represented the whole first half of the morning for those who were there. It was beautiful. It was reconciliation. It was Catholics and Protestants. It was um, Native Americans and the Caucasians. It was races. It was, you know, it was all this unity, reconciliation, repentance. It was beautiful. And then there was a transition point in it, and this was what Lou had been feeling was this moment where we would move from the call to the send, and we, for the first time, would call those in the stadium and say, now is the time for another major mobilization. And we understood even that time, this mobilization would touch everywhere from the unreached to the Muslim world to the marketplaces of America. That this movement would be a Jesus movement that would touch places all over the world. Europe, America, Asia, Africa. It wasn't just one group. It wasn't just one place. It was a generation being ignited with a flame that would carry it anywhere for the gospel. But we also were burning for the 2.5 billion people that have never heard the gospel before. Believing there's a generation who say, God, we'll do anything to reach them. We'll do anything that they would hear about Jesus. So that transition point comes. And it's actually hilarious, the whole moment. Because it's so wild and the call is so like constantly, the times are changing. They're like, you guys have an hour. Lindy's going to lead worship. We're going to call the, the stadium to the nations. And then they're like, you've got 40 minutes. You've got 30 minutes. And then they're like, and these other people need to share. It's just chaos. And literally, how many of you have heard of Joy Dawson? Joy Dawson's grandma on YWAM, 92 years old, and she is wild. She is stronger than any man I know or woman in the world. She is so strong. She's 92 and she's like four foot five. But she is a powerhouse in the spirit. She's there. And so there's like wildness going on all around us. And we find out right before we're supposed to go up there and lead, Todd White's with us. He's going to share. And then Lindy's going to lead us in worship. And then we're literally going to call the stadium to the nations or to this Jesus movement to be willing to go anywhere, believing it would be a tipping point. And right before we go up, the call coordinator comes to us and goes, hey, just so you know, um, Joy Dawson's up there and she is livid. And I'm like, what? 
she goes, she found out Lauren Cunningham only has one or two minutes to share, which is not a speaking event. It's just a prayer event, right? So nobody has time, but she didn't totally understand that. She's like, he's the li- she's livid. And he goes, I'm sorry, but I told her that it was you guys that made that decision. And then he runs off. And I'm like, unbelievable. You just set like a global prophet in anger against us. And it wasn't even us, right? So Brian and I go upstairs, somehow avoid Joy Dawson, get to the front of the stage. And, 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 and Lou gives it the mic to Todd White. He goes wild, does what Todd does so well. It's going to be so fun to have him with us here in a few weeks. And he's just uncorking gospel wildness, just like Todd does. And we know in the moment that Lou's about to hand the microphone to us and that we're be to throw down with everything in us for the launch of this Jesus movement, this mobilization movement. And right before that, I look over and Joy Dawson grabs my shirt. She pulls on it. She goes, Andy? She's from New Zealand. And she goes, it is unacceptable that the global apostle only has two minutes, Lauren. And I'm like, ugh. Stress. I'm literally standing on the front. 70,000 people. Microphone's on its way. And I'm like, all I care about right now is we just need to throw down with all of our heart for this tipping point. Right? And she's like, this is unacceptable. I go, Joy, I don't, I don't know anything. I don't know what's going on. I, I don't have any time. I, this is all just chaos. And she's like, well, give him your minutes. And I'm like, I don't even know if I have any minutes. And I don't know what to do, so I grab her by the shoulder, I pull her in, and I just start praying for revival. God, pour out your spirit in the stadium. God, do it. And she's like, uh, uh, yes, God, pour out your spirit in the stadium. And we just start praying for revival together. And in the moment, Lou throws down, says, shares the whole story of the transition, the call to ascend, mental Billy Graham falling generation, commissioning moment, throws the mic to us, and believe it or not, I'm almost done, but we had been given the day before, this is crazy, you got to hear this is the day before, there's a guy who happens to come who's evangelical, wouldn't normally come to a gathering like this. He doesn't know who Engel is. He's there, and he's stunned by it, and he's with a friend of mine, and he hears that we actually revere and love Billy Graham, which is a big deal to him because he's married to Billy Graham's granddaughter. So he goes, I got to tell, he calls him Daddy Billy. He goes, I got to tell Daddy Billy because he's grown up with him since he married his granddaughter. I got to tell him about this. That they're believing that my granddaddy's mental or his passion would fall on a whole generation. Well, Billy Graham is 99 now, I think, 98. He, uh, he's, he's sick. He's, he's kind of aware for about an hour a day right now, and even was then. And so he gets the one guy who spends that hour a day with Billy to go in and tell him about Azusa now and the word of the Lord. Wow. That stadiums will be filled with gospel proclamation and the mantle will fall on a whole generation. Billy remembers, comes to, remembers, he actually has the largest gathering in history in the Coliseum was a Billy Graham crusade. He goes, I remember being in that day. He sends us this whole quote message. It gets texted to me the day before the stadium gathering. And I'm like, how in the world? I had a text message from Billy Graham. <laughs> and so they hand me my, I read this text message from Billy Graham, which was so powerful. And it was about, it was about not being about him or stadiums, but it was about the masses carrying the gospel everywhere that they would go. And the stadium goes wild. Nick Brent shares a little bit. And we have a moment where we give an invitation and say, anybody who's willing to go anywhere for the gospel, take your shoes off and put them above your head. And, and we watch as tens of thousands of shoes go in the air, declaring we will go anywhere for the gospel message. Anywhere. And the, the stadium shouts 
a shout that I will never forget and have never heard before or since when 70,000 people roar because they believe that no place is too hard for the gospel and because they believe that they're the generation that's going to see the Great Commission walked out because they believe. And the shout of belief was deafening. The shout of faith was deafening and shoes held up in the air as a symbol. I will go anywhere for the gospel. I'm wrapping up. And right after that, I came back here. We launched a school shortly after. I was sharing this story and, uh, and someone interrupted me like where I'd be right here and raised their hand. And they were like, hey, just so you know, they were like, I was at the stadium and I raised my shoes. You were? Yeah. And, they, and she goes, that's why I came to DTS. And of course, the school was like you guys. They all roared. They were like, wow. And as quiets down and someone else raised their hand, they go, actually, I was there. And that's, I raised my shoes. She goes, that's why I was, I came to DTS. Third person raised their hand, goes, I was there. I raised my shoes. Fourth girl raises her hand. She goes, I was watching the live stream with my mom. She goes, I watched it on the internet. She goes, my mom and I took our shoes off in our room. We held them above our heads. And then she says this, literally, we're in the same setting here, and you know, guys, you know the Crossroads DTS is right there? She goes, that's why I'm in DTS, and she goes, and my mom's in the tent next door in Crossroads DTS. The last two years since this happened, everywhere I have gone, people come up to me and they go, I was there, I raised my shoes, I watched the live stream, I raised my shoes, and that's why I live in the Muslim world now. That's why I'm in Nepal now. That's why I came to DTS now. That's why I joined the Circuit Riders now. That's why I'm believing for a move of God in my university now. That's why I'm going after injustice now. There's so many, dozens and dozens and dozens. Now, this is not about any name, organization, brand name, any of that. This is about a Jesus movement. And I believe with all my heart that Azusa now is a tipping point to a true Jesus movement far beyond America, one nation among many others that God is doing this in. And as I look back and I go, 10 years ago, God spoke to us about fire and fragrance, a generation that would burn for the gospel. And they would become the fragrance of Christ out of that wholehearted devotion everywhere they went. Eight years ago, the Lord spoke to us about a generation of fiery-eyed revivalists who would crisscross the nation with messages of revolution under reformation. And now two years ago, I watched as 70,000 shoes went in the air. And since then, I've watched in stadiums in Prague in gatherings across Brazil, in gatherings in Cleveland, in gatherings in Singapore. I've watched as thousands and thousands and thousands of shoes have gone up all over the world saying we are willing to go anywhere for the gospel. And now here we are in January 2018. What's God about to do? What's he about to do? What is he really put in your heart that is about to get unleashed? What's taking place all over the earth right now that you have been brought into for such a time as this? What's God going to do with this family? Right now we have 27 teams on every continent. You're seeing the testimonies and there's so many we're not even able to get because they're in the jungles of Papua New Guinea right now. 27 teams with fire in their eyes and messages of revolution, seeing salvation, healing, but believing also for long-term transformation and change, dreaming about what it would look like to see revival and reformation. And I just want to say to you guys when we wrap up, this is who you are. It's inside of you. You burn with this fire. And if you're wondering, why am I really here? I just want to tell you why you're really here. Because there's a Jesus movement coming to the whole earth. And this will be the first global great awakening in human history. Warren's prophecy was that the greatest harvest in human history was upon us. And we've heard so many words like this. You've heard these words. But I just want to say, guys, now is the time. And this is the generation. Now is the time. And this is the generation. This is why we're here. Guys, 
it, God. Yes. We mean it, God. do anything. God, our hearts are on fire. Our hearts are ablaze, Jesus. Our eyes are on fire. God, we believe it. We believe it. We say we're all in, God. We believe it, God. We believe it, God. Thrust us. Thrust us all over the earth, God. We declare now is the time for a Jesus movement. Now is the time. Now is the time. Jesus' name, we declare now is the time. Now is the time. And this is the generation. Yes, God. Wow. Wow. Thank you, God. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Wow. Come on. Just permanently keep our shoes off. I love you guys. So love you guys. Guys, today's just a little deposit of faith in our hearts. Just receive it. Just receive that little deposit of faith. We live in amazing days. I'm so glad you're here. We're just the beginning of our journey. It's just going to get a whole lot wilder. All right, Jeff. Woo!